Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to watch other ones, please go to batgap.com and go under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the other ones archived. Um, this show is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and feel like supporting it in any amount, um, there are PayPal buttons on every page of the site. And if you don't like PayPal, there's a donations page which explains other ways of doing it. And my guest today is Michael Spate. Michael is an interesting guy. Uh, his background is somewhat similar to mine. He was in the TM movement for many years. And um, he has lived in many respects, a, a, I would say, a, a much um, saner life than mine in that um, he had his first profound mystical experience when he was 11. And uh, when I was still like totally confused little guy that hadn't even gotten to Boy Scouts yet. And um, he, he bypassed many of the destructive aspects of the 60s that um, I indulged in. <laughs> and uh, it paid off for him. He, he had a profound awakening and has had all kinds of beautiful mystical experiences all of his life. Um, so I don't know why I launched on that little comparative uh, narrative there, but welcome, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Whatever pops into my head, you know. <laughs> okay, so um, Michael lives in Ogden, Utah, which is right near Salt Lake. And um, there's an interesting reason why he lives there. We'll see whether we get into that or not. Uh, but he's lived a fascinating life for the last many, many decades. And uh, I think we want to start... Michael, with the experience you had in the library when you were 11, because that really kind of launched your, your spiritual quest. Okay. My school took the trip to the library, and we had um, the opportunity to go exploring a bit. Most of the kids went off to the children's section, and I didn't. I, I took off the other side of the library, um, and I ended up in the philosophy and religion section, and I was just walking slowly down that aisle, and I was drawn to a book. I mean, I literally just looked over, and I, my hand went out almost on automatic pilot, and I pulled this book off the shelf. And I've had I, people who's in, who've done things like that, and the books actually fall off the shelf. They don't even have to reach for it, <laughs> but some book falls off. They look at it; it's Ramana Maharshi or something. You know? Oh my gosh! Wow. <laughs> well, I wasn't quite like wasn't quite like that, yeah. but. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and I opened up and I'm looking through it and there was um, a black and white photograph of the Portola Palace. Which is? That's in Tibet, in Lhasa, Tibet, the living quarters for the Dalai Lama. Well, Before he got extra, yeah. yeah, banished or whatever, yeah. Right, yeah, and he, so I, um, it just, I looked at it, I just recognized that it was, it was huge. Just this huge emotional welling up, and uh, it just looked like home. You yeah. know, it just felt like my house. You know, totally familiar to me. Did you later so, have any past life experiences, vivid ones about that, or was it just more this familiarity uh, yes, when you were eleven? Yeah, later, um, my wife and I had a shared experience of um, <laughs> God. Oh my gosh! And, and we had it at the same moment. We were sitting there talking. We both went like, did you just get that? And I, I was riding on my horse. I was all decked out. I was going into this town in, somewhere in the Himalayas to collect my bride 
which was my current wife, mm -hmm. and she saw me coming and took off and beat feet. <laughs> and we didn't get married. But she could describe the horse, and I could describe the horse, and what I was wearing, we both saw the same thing. And I think that's why we got married this life, uh, to deal with that. Yeah, you had like a karmic debt to pay there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, serious one. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and uh, so that book um, changed my life. It, uh, it was one of Alexandria David Neal's works, and... Uh, you know, she's that woman who spent, uh, what I was, 18 years in Tibet. And um, I read the book, and it talked about mystical things to me as a child. People levitating and melting snow around them and walking super fast to the Himalayas, guided by stars and things mm -hmm. like that. And so I was uh, smitten with that. I, I just was like, wow, man, I want to know how to do that. And from reading the book, she was talking about meditation. And somehow I cognized a meditation, which later turned out to be a traditional Tibetan meditation, visualization meditation. And I practiced that um, pretty much almost every day until I was about 15 years old when I had my first very profound experience of pure consciousness, you know, what in the Tian movement they would call the transcendent very profound and after that it was just yeah, this is this is what i want for my life that's that's the goal that's what i want to have uh of course i had to make a living and do all those things that everybody else has to do but i didn't lose sight of that those listening to the live recording if you want to post a question during this interview go to the upgoing up, upcoming interviews page on batgap.com and you'll see a form at the bottom of that page through which you can post questions. And that is true of all the interviews I do on Skype. Okay, so when you had that experience of the transcendent, well, I mean, can you describe it a little bit more? I mean, how did you know it? Or maybe you didn't know at the time that it was an experience of the transcendent, and you later put words to it. Yeah, I didn't know. I, mm -hmm. At that time, I, I, um, I put those words to it after I had met Maharishi and learned you know, what we learned. And I... Um, it was that, I would say, what what I related to it at the time was the peace that pathes all understanding. Right. Because we grew up going to church and all that sort of stuff, and that was it for me. I worked very hard after that trying to recreate that experience, and uh, I think what got in the way was my father passed away when I was 14, uh, rather untimely, and, you know, I think maybe as a, as a young boy or you're a young man, you're struggling with puberty. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so it was a little bit difficult, um, although I kept practicing. And then I tried other things. I tried Zen for a number of years. Didn't get anywhere with that. It's kind uh, of impressive that you, at that young age, throughout your entire adolescence, you practiced meditation regularly. And what, an hour, two hours a day? I mean, how, how much? Um, I, I would do is, I probably did an hour plus each time. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that I should say is my father was into gymnastics and my brother and I both were gymnasts, you know, from knee high. We even had some equipment in our backyard. Yeah. And through that, uh, I started a, a Hatha yoga practice. Uh -huh. And so I started doing Hatha yoga pr 
before I, you know, before age 11. And, uh, and so I was doing that regularly. So that may have had something to do with it. And I had somewhere along the line, I don't remember exactly where, but but when I was young, I learned about pranayama. Yeah. And so I've been doing some uh, breathing exercises. And really cool. So it it all just felt felt right. Uh, I will say I did not share any of that with my mother after my dad passed away because it just didn't feel I, I was concerned sure you know I, I didn't want my mother to worry about anything she had enough to worry about with my dad being gone yeah but it's impressive because you know most kids that age um, are just bouncing off the walls there's no way you can get them to sit still and here you were meditating at least an hour a day and uh, definitely to me it, it sort of I mean, my way of thinking, it, it indicates some kind of carryover from past lives. The only thing I ever had like that was I, I figured out how to put my legs in lotus posture. Um, oh, cool. You know, just when I was sitting around in the neighborhood playing around, oh, you could put this leg up here and then that leg can go up there. And I actually won a prize at a birthday party for doing that. <laughs> so, okay. but, uh, that's great. I didn't get any inkling of the enlightenment thing until I was about 17, but that's another oh, that's story. Right. That's great. That's great. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it seems, um, I don't know, it all just felt very normal Yeah. Uh, for me. I just It just felt natural. But the fact that you meditated so diligently, even when it wasn't really easy and you weren't really getting any great results from it, that's like amazing to me. Uh, I don't know. I, by the time I graduated, you know, by the time I finished 10th grade, mm-hmm. I read every single book in that library's philosophy and religion section. Wow. That's impressive. So I, uh, yeah, I was like running out of things. And uh, so I think that through all of that, you can see the bookshelf behind me. Yeah. That's that's what's left of my several thousand book collection. I've got it down to that now. Yeah. I kept studying, you know, reading mm-hmm. and studying and trying to learn. Mm. And that, that was always very inspiring. And then I, I had a talk about 17 years old. My best friend from Boy Scouts' father owned a bunch of horses, and he would take um, people on hunting and fishing camps in the summer, and he'd get us boys to work, you know, mm-hmm. which which was, oh, wow, you know. And we'd go up in the Sierras, and so we used to go up from um, this base of uh, Lone Pine in the Sierras, and there was a cabin there, and uh, we always would stop at to water the horses before going over the 8,000 foot pass. And I, we'd always knock on the door of the cabin, mostly nobody was there. But this one time, uh, a man answered the door and there was something about him. I didn't know what it was, but there was just something about him that was different. And uh, many years later, I found out that that was uh, Franklin Merrill Wolf. Oh, I'll be done. How cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was yeah. 17. So there you go. Tell people who he is just briefly, just in case they... Franklin Merrill Wolf was this extraordinarily brilliant man, PhD, mathematician, philosopher, got into Shankara big time back in the 20s and 30s and had a complete realization, wrote a number of very fine books um, and uh, had a small following. And he found uh, L.A. He was living in Los Angeles, and he found it was too difficult. And so he moved. uh, They moved to that cabin up Mm. there, he and his wife. 
That's cool. So, since you're talking about Boy Scouts in the mountains, there was this interesting story you told about how you were camping and you just had tents and there was this really violent storm coming up the valley. Yeah. Did you tell that one just for kicks? Oh, wow. Yeah, we'd been out. Uh, the scout trip that I was with hiked uh, about 60, 70 miles of the John Muir Trail every summer. Mm-hmm. So we'd done that. It was um, this, the last day uh, or last night before we hiked out and we were in this um, canyon, so to speak, a big, broad canyon with mountains on both sides and, and at the end where we'd come off the pass down into, and there was a lake there, and there this uh, storm cranked up that was just mind-boggling. Uh, lightning, thunder, dark clouds, you know, it was really something. And it was coming down the valley right toward us, and uh, everybody was getting a little worried. Uh, so people, the scouts started put. we had tube tents, you know, worthless things. <laughs> That's like a pup tent or something? It's, it's, a, it's a plastic tube, and you run a, a line through it between two trees, and you sort of make a pup tent out of it with uh-huh. a couple of clothespins. Okay. You're going to get wet, but uh, not, not as bad. So people were putting those up. And I didn't. I, I, um, I went over by myself, and I just knelt down, and I prayed. I, I literally prayed in a very, like, a Christian fashion and, uh, of my childhood. Uh, which is a, a Catholic uh, uh, high Episcopal Catholicism, and I just prayed, and I, you know, I just asked, I said, "Could could we be spared this storm? It's got to really wipe us out. You know, it could kill people. You've got lightning going everywhere. There's not much around there because uh, you're uh, just right right there, just slightly above tree line, and the storm just came on down, and it it got right up to the edge of our camp where you could you could stick your arm out. Mm-hmm. and get water on mm-hmm. it. You know, it would get wet and pull it back and it'd be dry. And this wind came out of the north, blew that storm right around our camp, literally, like just clunk, very precise. Yeah, like 20 feet, 15 feet away. Yeah, yeah, and then around it, and then it came back to where it had been, uh-huh. except on the other side of us, and went on down the valley. Huh. And we were all dry. Huh. And, and the other kids were like, what are you doing? Why, why didn't? Why don't you put up your tube tent? You know, and I was like, no, we're not going to get wet. I just knew it, and it was uh, powerful. I, I've always felt much closer to uh, God up in the mountains. Sure, yeah, me too. I love mountains, whether hiking or skiing or whatever you do in them. I, I've always loved them, which is why I live in Iowa, right? <laughs> <laughs> grew up in Connecticut. But there's uh, some ir- irony there. Yeah. So there's some interesting other stories like that in your life, but they happen later on. So let's come back to those. Um, and uh, perhaps moving chronologically, which is sometimes an orderly way to go, uh, tell us a bit about how you ended up getting into TM. I had a friend. Uh, our parents shared the hospital room, and he was born the day before I was. And so we just grew up together like family, and he had gone off to um, Humboldt State College. It wasn't a university, but I guess State College in Northern California in... Um, Eureka. Yeah, actually north of Eureka there. Oh, okay. um, Arcata. Arcata, that's right. it, yeah. And uh, he called me. I, I was I had gotten a job packing mules for the U.S. Forest Service for the backcountry, you know, which was um, 
$2.75 an hour for sitting on your horse riding around God's country. It was fabulous. Mm. Uh, he said, why don't you come up and help me pay the rent, which which is his modus operandi. He was always yeah. kind of like that. <laughs> and then he said, oh, and there's this guy named Maharishi up here. And I didn't I didn't ring a bell with me. I didn't know who that was. But I, I resigned my um, job, and it was coming toward the end of my 90-day appointment anyway. So I just left and uh, went up to Humboldt. <clears throat> and uh, turned out Maharishi was there uh, doing the 1970 uh, teacher training course. I met all these, what I thought were really cool people uh, hanging out there. I really liked the way they felt. Uh, and uh, we, uh, I can remember a bunch of us getting together and singing, Hey Jude, you know, like, uh, <laughs> how 60s is that? But uh, I went up to the place where Marishi would come to give his lectures and waited for him to arrive. Did that, I think, three times. Uh, wasn't impressed, but I kept going back. There was something that just, you know, like pulled me there. And then uh, I think it was about the fourth time or so, uh, there was a very well-dressed man standing there, you know, blue blazer and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I got into a converse, in-depth conversation with him. Um, and I'm one of those people who talk to anybody. You know, I love talking to people. So perhaps really amazing conversation. Mauricio arrived. And then the doors opened, and the whole crowd of people was out there just sort of, I got sucked along with them, pulled right in. And uh, I, I was given a seat in the front row, uh, about two seats down from the gentleman who turned out to be the keynote speaker, a professor from Stanford. Uh, amazing, amazing lecture. And uh, just listening to Marishi speak and being that close to him and how he felt to me, uh, I thought this is this is the man. This, this is my teacher. This is the guy who's gonna open this up for me. And so I went uh, to ask, went to ask if I could learn from him. He had a, a room that he would go to on campus, and not where he was actually staying, but uh, for you know between things. And I went up and waited in line. I took a little flower with me, you know, stood there like this. And he came out, and as he was walking toward me, I just had this thought that I shouldn't take his time. Uh, I, I thought that I should, I, my thought, I can still remember it, was I should dedicate my life to freeing his time so that he could bring his teaching to the world. And in that moment, I took a classic Zen-type bodhisattva vow to uh, not give up until all sentient beings have reached enlightenment. And then I sat there and I thought about it. I went, like, "Oh God, what did I just?" <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, you know. But um, that seemed to really pay off because getting ahead. But later on, um, after I'd become a teacher, I was uh, invited to join Maurice's staff, and uh, or well, a course, a course staff, and then that worked out to joining Maurice's in the international staff, and that worked out to. Uh, being Marishi's personal assistant. So yeah, that's nice. It's pretty cool. What years were you on international staff? Uh, 73. And then we came back and found it, uh, MIU, went through all of that, and then I went back. I was back and forth uh, quite a bit. Um, 
Well, we let's not take too much time on that, but I was just, there must have been some overlap. I was over there from like fall of 73 through oh. spring of 76. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Probably we crossed yeah. paths. You know, yeah. it's not, not that there was any lack of people around Marishi, but yeah. Yeah, I was at Salisburg and Herkenstein, Vegas, sure, you know, all those the, places. the usual suspects. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when you finally learned, I guess it wasn't from Marishi, it was from somebody else, um, was your initial experience, you know, what you'd hoped it would be? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. First uh, meditation. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, wow, God, yes. <laughs> it was <laughs> one, of those, one of those moments. It was yeah. very, very powerful. And then I promptly forgot my mantra. Uh, <laughs> had to get that recovered. Um, and then the other thing that happened was uh, I just instantly was doing an hour worth of meditation each time. You just I, sink into it. Yeah, I'd close my eyes, and when I thought time was up, I'd open them, be an hour later. Yeah. Uh, Even yeah. though it's supposed to be 20 minutes, but you like to lose <laughs> track, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I did, yeah. TM had a profound effect on me. I, I tend not to be a proselytizer for it anymore, or in these interviews, certainly. But, yeah. um, but, it, but at the same time, it, you know, sometimes it was brushed off as trivial or just a stress reduction technique or something good for beginners and all. And I think that does it a disservice because, you know, it's been very profound for many people. And I, many people have, have awoken as a result of its practice. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, TM is one of the fast path methods, mm -hmm. which is fast path simply meaning you have a shot at it in one lifetime. Um, and it certainly was very, very profound. I owe Marishi a debt that is unrepayable uh, from, from one point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, the greatest teacher I've ever known, I learned the most around him than even anybody else. Uh, amazing, extraordinary man. Yeah. So you mentioned that within six months of the beginning, you, your grade point average went from a 1.28 to a 4.0. Yep. That's nice. Any particularly noteworthy, you know, um, experiences during that whole phase when you were like Marshy's personal attendant or anything? Well, um, yeah, there was, uh, well, on my teacher training course, uh, I, there was a lot of celestial perception, uh, you know, or refined perception of things. Uh, you know, seeing through walls, watching people's souls, uh, cognizing their thoughts, uh, healing people. Uh, there was a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, and it was, it was pretty darn amazing. You were probably meditating 10, 12 hours a day or something. Uh, 18. 18. <laughs> For the first 12 days or so yeah. of the course. And then... Marishi asked, well, Marishi was in silence, and then he came out on, a, on the 12th of January, and uh, we had a meeting with him, I think, uh, the next day or so, maybe that evening, I don't remember exactly. And he said, uh, you know, okay, how long have you been meditating for? And we, <laughs> we'd all been doing 12 plus hours, you yeah. know. He got around to me and he goes like, oh, <clears throat> well, uh, we could, uh, you know. Cool, though. Go off a little bit, yeah. You see, you mentioned in some notes I read that you had instructed like seventeen thousand people to meditate. How in the world did you do that many people? <laughs> yeah, well, I have to put in there that that's actually uh, 
instruction in meditation, advanced techniques, and uh, I've led a couple of um, GM uh, Cities courses. Oh, if you count all those people, okay. Yeah, so that's yeah. you got to put it, put it all in there. And yeah. uh, uh, Marishi made me a, a GM Cities administrator, advanced techniques teacher, uh, which really upset <laughs> some people. Uh, in the movement, uh, who who weren't on the call, so to speak, and uh, boy, that had some interesting ramifications. Uh, uh, another one of the reasons why I don't have much to do with the TM movement anymore. Actually, I don't have anything to do with the TM yeah. movement anymore. There's all those politics in in organizations, you know. There are. Yeah. There are. So at some point, you say you had. You awakened. You had became self-realized or something. You know, I, people post these videos on YouTube. There's this guy just the other day that someone brought to my attention that said you know, it was going on about how he had gotten enlightened, and um, he was. I didn't watch the whole thing. Just sort of spot checked a few bits of it, but he went on for a couple of hours, looking at his hand and looking at the wall and talking about how he had become enlightened. And um, I, I, it reminds me when I hear, see things like that that the whole concept of awakening and enlightenment and and so on is a little fuzzy in the popular understanding. It, there's no clear-cut, agreed-upon definition of what we mean by these terms. Um, so, what do you mean by them? And what uh, when you say that you became realized or awake, what happened? How would you know that? Yeah. Yeah. How would question. you know, and what do you mean by it, as compared to what all the other people who say it mean by it? And because I don't know if right. you got them all in the same room and had them compare notes, there might be some, you know, overlap and agreement, and and some disagreement. I, yeah, it might might well be. Um, I was speaking on the phone to a man that I know to be enlightened. I'm not going to mention his name because uh -huh. uh, I don't have permission to do that. Uh -huh. And he was asking me some questions. Uh, hard-hitting questions, and all of a sudden I just went, whoa, boom, and uh, it was dramatic. I felt my whole crown chakra burst open. I felt like the top of my head was on fire. I felt Shakti going up out of the top of my head. I've never had anything that dramatic before, uh, and uh, he just kind of laughed, and he said, well, there you are, <laughs> and I said, I said, okay. Uh, I wasn't going to necessarily take his word for it because I've had other profound experiences, nothing like that. But it never went away. It's still there. And I checked it with um, one of two of Maurice's Vedic couples and went over everything with them. I talked to Jerry, you know who I mean, Jerry. Jerry Jarvis, and, yeah. Yeah. And we talked quite a bit. And I talked to another enlightened person that I know, and I went over all my experiences of what was going on. The other thing that I would say is because Maharishi trained us so well and gave us such clear definitions of these things, <clears throat> that it was self-evident to me. My experience was exactly as he described. I didn't really have any doubts about it from the beginning, yeah. but I did want to verify it with other people. And exactly use the term, wow, boom. Uh, no, but <laughs> and you didn't talk too much about <laughs> flames coming out of your head or whatever. No, no, but, but no. And, and that's unusual. Let me say, yeah. I have I have friends, couple in Fairfield and other California, who just sort of woke up 
Yeah. In fact, uh, one of them was oh, awake in about four years, and she thought she was. But finally, she talked to somebody else, and they went, oh, yeah, you're there. And she went, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it was just natural and smooth. You know, a, a big flashy boom, that's probably more rare. Yeah, some people distinguish between, like, people who have these sudden dramatic awakening and, and oozers, you know, <laughs> who kind of ooze into it. And, and you, they couldn't quite mark on a calendar when the shift happened, but in retrospect, they realized, whoa, you know, I mean, it's all different yeah. now. And, it, and yeah, like that. Well, what, what, the thing that I would add to that is um, about a week before this happened, something inside me quit. It just gave up. Mm. Now, I didn't stop meditating or anything, but I just, something in me just surrendered is yeah. the word. And I think that's what changed. Something mm. in me surrendered, and with that surrendering, then in that moment, uh, it it went through. I think that's key because you know a lot of people say you don't do it or make it happen. You no. know, it's not something you get or you do. That's correct. Right. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. Maharishi always told us you can't force transcendence. That's my experience of it. Uh, we set up the conditions of it. No matter what teaching you're following, no matter what meditation you're following, you're relaxing, you're letting go, whatever it is, uh, whether it's Advaita, intellectual, something in there shifts and changes until that surrender takes place. The, gr the word usually used is grace. Yeah. yeah. I sometimes have used the analogy of like, let's say you have a pan of water and it's a little choppy and you want the waves to settle down, the water to become perfectly still. You just have to let that happen. You don't do it by pushing on the waves to try to get them to stop because you can just create more waves if you do that. Uh, yeah, good analogy. <laughs> okay, so you're a guy who had a rather marked and abrupt shift. And so, you know, like what was life like, let's say, the week after that shift that was different <laughs> than the week before that shift? I mean, what changed? And, and, and you well, say it continues to this day. So what's different about you now than was than prior to the shift well, in terms uh, of your subjective experience? The week after, I went to bed. Really? Because <laughs> you were wiped out by it? or I was wiped out. Ah. I was totally hosed. I, uh, I hit the sack. I didn't get out of bed except to eat. My wife would check on me. You know, you're okay. Yep, dear, I'm fine. Better than I've ever been. Totally awake, uh, vivid, amazing, uh, extraordinary shift in perception uh, that I couldn't really put my finger on. I don't. I can point at it with words, but I can't describe it. Uh, but it just everything was amazing, and uh, and the top of my head felt like open and alive. Hmm. Uh, just on fire uh, and that went on for actually about a month <clears throat> and uh, after that uh, there was this sort of um, roller coaster ride where some days I felt just totally amazing and other days I felt like rock bottom again mm. and that kind of fluctuated like that and mm -hmm. that's my understanding is that that's not all that uncommon no it's not <laughs> so there's a, it usually it's an integration phase that's going on. You know, there's been this big blowout, and the nervous system has to catch up or adapt yeah. to it. Yeah, I yeah. think so. But I, I I'm gonna leap ahead a little bit and say that that you never exhaust it. What do you mean? Uh, well, it, you've gone into a into a pure consciousness that is 
on a first name basis with infinity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there you are. And infinity is infinite and you can't exhaust it. So you're always going to grow. You're always going to have the opportunity to expand. You're always going to have the opportunity for more knowledge in, in one sense, uh, although your awareness is huge. Just in talking to you right now, I've been cognizing you. Your physiology and self is getting structured in me. That happens a lot with, with people. They come and see me, and we just sit and talk. And then uh, I'll look at them and I'll say, oh, my goodness, what happened to your ribs? You know, and they say, like, oh, I, I cracked three of them, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> you start to see uh, on a more refined level. The, the other piece of it is, you know, you and I come from the TM tradition where Maharishi used English words to describe traditional states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And he also said it's really only one big giant state of consciousness. We, we use these descriptors to talk to you about this maturation, this maturing, this growth uh, as you proceed through it. And my, my experience of, of that was just two, two and a half months later, I was in what we call Brahman. Brahman, yeah. okay. And I, that's another one. I went back and I, I remembered Maharishi told us, okay, go read the um, Brahma Sutras. Brahma Sutras. So I, I have them. I pull them off the shelf. And it was like, oh, this makes sense. I've been reading these for 40 years. And uh, Isha Upanishad. But the greatest part of that is it's, it's a feeling of coming home. Mm -hmm. It's a feeling of complete naturalness, a freedom of total freedom, a freedom of equality with all things, a joy, a blissful state, not like our, what we might you know, like um, winning the lottery would be joyful, but not in, it's not the same thing. It's, it's more subtle, uh, more powerful than that. So it was it was a pretty quick turnaround. I'm still getting used to it. I'm I'm, I'm honest, you know. It's still every day is like, oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like another day in Disneyland. Yeah. Uh -huh. So when did this happen, this, this shift, this awakening? Um, like, not that long ago. The, oh, the just full, a few years or something? Uh, no, actually, um, the full shift took place last summer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm a newbie. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, I wanted to question you on some of the stuff you were just saying about infinity and all. You, you know, in mathematics, you can have infinity, and then you can have bigger infinities. Like, you could take infinity and add 10 to it. And that's bigger. <laughs> or you can take infinity and square it or cube it or, you know, take it to the 10th power. And so they play with this kind of concept. In, yeah. But in, in terms of consciousness and our, our experience of consciousness, your experience, do you feel and find that there's a sort of a dimension that isn't going to change or get bigger or vaster or anything else? It's already infinite. What more could be added to it? And yet it's that the embodiment of that, the living of that, the expression of that, the channeling of that through a human life has no end of, of growth. Does that well, fit your experience, or would you say it differently? I think that's a very good way of saying it. I, what I would say is this. Before enlightenment, we tend to think of infinity, and a lot of mathematicians do that, as something linear. Mm -hmm. You know, it started over here, and it goes off infinitely in that direction. And, and the kind of infinity of pure consciousness isn't like that. 
Um, uh, Aura Bindu used to say, uh, Satyam Ritam Prahat, uh, the truth, the right, the vast. Mm. Uh, so it's that vastness which your awareness begins to encompass. And I think some people um, who, who have been there longer have a maybe a greater sense of that than I might at this point in time. To me, there's a sense of it being limitless. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, while at the same time, there's a sense of continued growth and understanding. Uh, you got to remember in the, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna, when he sits down with Arjuna to have their discussion, uh, he starts with the subject of knowledge. Hmm. And then he talks about experience. Right. So, Sankhya, then yoga. Yeah. And I, I think that you can still learn things. Sure. I, I, I know, I met a woman who was the person, first person that Maharishi connected up with when he went to Hawaii back in 59, mm -hmm. and before he even came to San Francisco. And she told me uh, that, um, she, said, she was very, she said, oh, the poor little man, he didn't know anything about Christianity, and I had to tell him. You know? And, and I, I just, I still remember saying that. It was, <laughs> okay, little did she know. But, um, yeah, he, he probably didn't know much about Christianity. So he he learned, you know, he learned. He still learned. Sure. I mean, well, you know how to fly helicopters, I'm told. You, you said yes, you have a helicopter license, but you don't know how to fly 747s, and you don't know how to do brain surgery, and you don't know yeah. how to, you know, um, play the drums maybe. So, I mean, there obviously are all kinds of relative things we can learn, and right. no, no one would expect an enlightened person to be able to do all those things or know all those things. That Those are like specialized channels of knowledge and, and ability, right? Right, um, yeah. But we're, what we're kind of alluding to here is, you know, what is it that is kind of intrinsic to awakening that would be a common denominator for all people? Well, and, I, I yeah. hope, right. yeah, I, gosh, that's that's good. I'm glad you asked that because I've, I've listened to a few other marvelous interviews, and I think that this is a common question that comes up with people because you're asking two things. You're saying, what's your experience? And you're saying, what's the common denominator that everybody might experience? Uh -huh. And I, I'm going to guess that my experience might, at least this might be slightly different than somebody else's, um, uh, but have the commonality of that vastness, that awareness, and, and that unity. Uh, because the unity piece is, for me, if I look at an object and I focus my attention on it, I can't, I cannot differentiate between myself and the object that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And yet you know where to stick the fork when you eat dinner. Yeah, yeah. and yet you do, yeah, which is probably that lace vidya thing. You know, we got to still uh, survive and be able to eat and all of that. Yeah, lace vidya meaning faint remains of ignorance. Right. And yet, is it ignorance? Um, yeah, well, okay, so... I mean, yes, is, no. is appreciation of any sort of duality ignorance, or is it that the sort of divine, ah. th that we're appreciating the, the richness and, and variety of, of, of God and of God's creation? I think uh, you're... Do we, do we want to brush it off as being illusion, yeah. or do we want to see it as, as, the, the, as the divine in, in form? 
I want to do both. I want to I want to see the divine in form. I want to appreciate that because that's part of the reason for the creation. We're told, you know, the Vedic literature talks about that. All, all great saints have talked about the joy of God's creation and experiencing that, living that, and living that in its absolute fullness. And but you got to remember, Maharishis talk about living two hundred percent. Yeah. So we're living one hundred percent of the absolute value or that vastness, that pure consciousness. But we're also living one hundred percent of the relative value. So I don't see those as incompatible. And and frankly, I get frustrated with these teachers who say, "Oh no, none of that. That's all nonsense. It's all illusion. You know, it's all Maya. It doesn't exist because this does exist." Yeah, there's a, a term in Sanskrit, mithya. And um, yeah, yeah. which means dependent reality, and they use the example of a, a pot, you know, which it looks like a pot, it acts like a pot, you can put things in it, you can, um, and yet it's really only clay. So, right. is, is there yeah. really a pot, or is there only clay? Well, both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but and maybe that's, the that's... clay thing is more fundamental than the pot thing, but still doesn't mean there is no pot. Right. Well, I think people who, perhaps, I'm guessing, but perhaps the reason why some people like to emphasize a complete non-duality, because it can shake the unenlightened mind, the unrealized mind, a little bit out of its stupor and maybe make it freeze up a little bit, where then it has to expand and look at things a little bit differently. Maybe, but um, I think it also tends to confuse a lot of people because they're, they're trying to hold down jobs and raise families and, and you know take life a little bit seriously and they're they're being fed this thing over and over again that you don't exist and there is no universe and it's all an illusion and nothing matters and you have no free will and and uh you know it's all preordained and and yada yada and i don't know if those teachings are are really applicable or appropriate or useful well, for I, everybody yeah well I, I agree with you i don't think they're useful everybody um i think that you have to define your terms you know i spent a lot of years in the computer industry and you know, one of the first things you do is you define your terms before you get into a discussion to make sure you're all on the same plate. <clears throat> and uh, I think that there's, a, you know, my background's in religious studies, and there's a huge disparity between cultural context understanding. Uh, so if you're if you grew up in Japan and you grew up around Zen Buddhism and you're familiar with those terms, and then you take that to America, like. Alan Watts is a good example of a guy who completely blew it, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you know, he, he tried, I think, but he just didn't really get Zen. And so he didn't translate it into our culture in the way that perhaps would have been as useful as it might have been. So we see a lot of that misunderstanding taking place. And I think that I did that. I think we all did that with Marishi's teachings. And other people's teachings, you know, we read it, we received it at the level where we were. And then, you know, later we go, oh, <laughs> that's what the, I didn't see that before. Yeah. That brings up an interesting question. Uh, a few minutes ago, you talked about how you had this awakening. And then within a couple of months, you sort of got to Brahman, as you, you use the word Brahman. And um, I was thinking about, like, if there's a, a religious tradition or a culture in which you're told over and over again from your, you know, formative years that uh, the the whole concept of God is irrelevant, and you know, ultimately everything is emptiness and and things like that. I wonder if that's the kind of experience you grow into 
and you know whether there are outliers or, or mavericks in such cultures who who begin to experience God and wonder, well, they never told me about this, you know, uh, or you know, whereas if you're in another culture which which emphasizes the development of God consciousness and and higher states than self realization, whether you naturally grow into those, um, what do you think about that? Well, I uh, I've heard it said that uh, you're born into your religion and your culture because that's what you need to experience to, to experience yeah, so I, I would have to agree with both those statements we are products of our conditioning and we're also victims of our concepts you know cognitive dissidents should be studied in school by everyone you know everybody should have that right on the tip of their tongue the understanding that we tend to reshape things that fit our idea of the way things should be, which is based on our conditioning and our concept. That's actually some notes here, actually, from your book. You, said, you talked about cognitive dissonance theory, and you said, one, humans are sensitive to inconsistencies between actions and beliefs. Two, recognition of this inconsistency will cause dissonance um, and will motivate an individual to resolve the dissonance. Three, dissonance will be resolved in one of three basic ways, changing beliefs, changing actions, or changing perception of action. Correct, yeah, and I, I just want to make sure I didn't write that. Oh. I plagiarized that one. Sure. <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't say that any better, so <laughs> why, well, why not use, use yeah, what sure. was written? Yeah, that's it exactly. So this is why... Wow, why why we have a lot of the problems we have in the world? You know, why some people like uh, somebody's politics and somebody else doesn't? You know, or somebody's religion? They get very vehement about their version of it, and you know, not um, uh, they're not being gentle, they're not being kind, they're not opening up and and living life uh, in a more fundamental uh, truth level. Yeah, I guess one way I would frame it is rather than beliefs and actions that, you know, understanding and experience, maybe that's another way of saying the same thing, but, yeah. you know, you, the religious fundamentalists, for instance, they, they're holding tightly to a certain belief um, yep. or beliefs. Do they really experience that or are they just holding tightly to something that they can't, that they haven't experientially verified? And if uh, they were to experientially yeah. verify it, would they lighten up? And, and realize that, you know, other expressions in other cultures are actually saying the same thing just because they yeah. sound different because it's other cultures. I, I'm on the um, Salt Lake City Interfaith Council. Mm -hmm. It's quite fascinating to be in a room of people who all are talking to each other. You know, Muslims, Jews, mm -hmm. Christians, all versions are talking to each other. And they're saying, oh, look, we have this in common. Yeah. You know, they're really, uh, it's a beautiful group of people. They're about finding that commonality as opposed to finding the differences. But people do very much vehemently hold on to their versions of things. If uh, it's my opinion that if, if Jesus were to show up today, he would not remotely recognize what passes for uh, Christianity almost anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah, I've often thought that too, and that and that if you put Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, and Muhammad, you know, whoever, in a room together, they'd have a grand old time, and that they they would just you know be basically on the same page. Right? Yeah, they probably and, and be learning from each other, saying, "Oh, you see it this way, very interesting." Yeah, I hadn't thought yeah. of that. And, 
Yeah. yeah. They like like the old Rishis, you know, they'd sit around the campfire, I suppose, and not talk about making s'mores, but talk about <laughs> cognitions of the days, you know, yeah. which would have been more interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. Okay. And, and you also have to remember, too, that um, Christianity and, uh, unfortunately, the Quran also have been um, reinterpreted and mistranslated, transcribed, etc. Yeah. Uh, you know, Muhammad was illiterate. You know, he didn't even know how to write. And and he, he spoke uh, Syro-Aramaic, not Arabic. So when when you were translating, I'm, I'm not picking on Muslims. No, using it as a case in point. Just, just a case in point. But the uh, when you translated from the Syro-Aramaic into the Arabic, things could get messed up. Sure. And, uh, I have friends who wrote a very fine book about that. I helped with some of the editing in it. And uh, no, nobody wants to read that book who isn't an academic, believe me. Mm -hmm. uh, but but um, you could say the same thing about um, early Christianity. I'm a huge fan of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Dr. Ehrman is a brilliant, in my opinion, uh, early uh, Christian, uh, you know, Christology mm -hmm. person. <clears throat> And incidentally, you have a PhD in religious studies, I should mention. Um, and another thing we could mention here is that, you know, people like Jesus and so on spoke from a certain level of consciousness, and their listeners could only listen from their level of consciousness, yeah. and something is lost right there. I mean, right in the very room or building or crowd that, that, is, that is gathered. So yeah. what, you know, if it's lost right there, what's to say of being lost over hundreds and thousands of years? I yeah, I think that's exactly, Maharishi used to say it was just, you know, the, the guilty party. crumbles was, on the hard part, rocks of ignorance. Yeah, it's time. Time's the guilty party, you mm -hmm. know. I want to loop back to what you're, you, you again, you, we, we almost looped back to this, now we're going to do it. Um, you, you talked about, you had this realization, within a few months you were in Brahman consciousness. Now, you know, there's certain earmarks of, higher states of consciousness, um, including the initial one, cosmic consciousness or self-realization, and then stages after that. One of the earmarks of, of cosmic consciousness, or, or the permanence of pure consciousness in the midst of waking, dreaming, and sleeping, <clears throat> is that you're not supposed to lose pure awareness during sleep anymore. Did that happen to you? Um, I went back and forth a little bit in the beginning. Yeah. But it's, I, I don't... My body sleeps. I'm old, you know, decrepit, falling <laughs> apart, you know, uh, as Monty Python said, you know, my knees are knackered, you know, all of that. Uh, but uh, it just, um, yeah. So what it's, what about now? You, it's, it's just there. Pure, pure awareness <laughs> is there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now people might wonder, okay, how do you know it's there? Because are you thinking, oh, here it is? Because if you're thinking, here it is then you're thinking thoughts, and thoughts are characteristic of waking state, you know? Right, yeah. So how do you well, know, do you remember it when you wake up in the morning, or do you actually know it's there throughout the night? And, and is that knowing some kind of activity taking place, which means you're not sleeping as deeply as, as you might? Uh, uh, you can still sleep. Um, you can sleep as deep as whatever, is what you're able. Uh, but uh, awareness is awareness. It's just pure awareness. There's nothing but awareness. But I will say this. You can have thoughts in pure awareness. Yeah, but are those thoughts um, part of waking state coming in, or can you have thoughts and yet, I mean, because, yeah, pure awareness, okay, that's there. But then, uh, then in addition to that, either you're awake, you're asleep, or you're dreaming, right? 
Or what else could you be? Just aware. Yeah, but your body is one of those three states. Yeah, well, your body, your body, yeah. It, 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 there's the perception that that's what's going on. I'm not completely convinced that that's exactly the way it is anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had, okay, I've had heart surgery. Right. I had my gall, I lost my gallbladder. Uh -huh. uh, my knee's been worked on. My shoulder's been rebuilt. <laughs> I mean, bionic. Stuff. Yeah, when I, when I was in India, I went to um, uh, Ayurvedic. Ayurvedic clinic, and the guy screwed up, but he poured boiling hot oil down my sinuses. <clears throat> yeah, that was not good. And uh, yeah, and and so I have uh, I've had sinus surgery. Okay, all right. Jesus. So you can have my point is, you can have all this stuff and still get enlightened. Uh huh. Still experience pure consciousness twenty four by seven. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in deep sleep. You could be watching yourself sleep. Mm -hmm. If you're dreaming, you could watch yourself dream. You can, you could design your dreams if you want. Mm -hmm. I've done that. You know, get to play uh, Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. You know, lucid dreaming, do that kind of stuff. Uh, in waking state, you can sit. You're 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 in pure consciousness, but you're having you know normal thoughts. You're thinking, mm -hmm. uh, but. Thoughts aren't who you are. You know, thoughts are just thoughts. They're yeah. thought forms. They come and go. And I, I think one of the things that I learned along the way was to not pay attention to my own thoughts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, that pretty well covers it, I think. Um, so anyway, just a summary point then. We're talking about pure consciousness being maintained 24-7, including during sleep. That's said to be, and I have a whole, I have this file on my computer with, dozens of quotes from different people, Nisargadatta and various others, mm. uh, about that very thing. And that's not always mentioned. Do you, do you think of that as an, kind of a, an acid test of awakening that is going to be the case for anybody who is validly awakened, or is it a special case situation? Uh, well, uh, I'm not able to answer that in the definitive because I haven't talked to everybody on the planet <laughs> who's, who's gotten enlightened. I do know one man who absolutely insists that uh, uh, witnessing during sleep is not a criteria of enlightenment. Yeah. And and I believe he's enlightened. I, yeah. I, I do believe he's enlightened. Yeah, I've had this discussion with friends, and there was one guy, for instance, who said, yeah, well, that went on for quite a while, but I got tired of it, and I, I'd, I'd just as soon really be asleep when I'm asleep. And so, you know, somehow he was able to shut it down, and yet he considers himself to still be yeah. awake. Yeah. No. Yeah, so I think that everybody, again, it's an infinite universe, an infinite possibility of experiences. Uh, you know, you you can cry with joy and you can cry with sorrow, mm -hmm. but the mechanism's the same. Yeah. So if we're witnessing our sleep, great. If we're not witnessing our sleep, when you wake up, what's there? If you're if you're witnessing when you wake up and you're witnessing all the time you're awake, or you're witnessing when you're dreaming, but maybe you aren't doing it when you're sleeping, uh, I don't know that it makes a difference. Yeah, I think Ramana used to say, you know, well, you wake up and you you say, I slept well. Well, how do you know you slept well if there was no awareness? Yeah, during, exactly. Yeah, there has to be something there. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you remember one time Maharishi was being asked. Uh, something and he, he said I, I don't remember and the guy who was asking got all upset he said what you you how come you can't remember 
And Marcy very calmly looked at him and said, in order to remember, you must first be able to forget. Huh. Yeah. So it's the same thing. What's memory? Memory is stuff lodged someplace in our brain, at least in part, but it's also um, more holistic than that. Yeah, I mean, th that sort of, I wouldn't have gotten upset with him saying that or anybody saying that because that implies that the enlightened person is supposed to be like Rain Man or something, you know, who can go through the whole phone book and then recount it to you. Uh, yeah. it's, that's a special case ability which shouldn't yeah. be confused with enlightenment. I agree. And yeah. so should, so maybe the analogy falls apart there, but <clears throat> is uh, witnessing 24 by 7 a special category or is it a hallmark? Yeah. Well, maybe we'll leave that question open-ended. It's, it's something that comes up every now and then. But I guess the, the you know, what I'm kind of getting at with questions like that is, are there universal criteria for higher states of consciousness? Could they eventually be mapped out in a systematic way uh, yeah. and, and correlated with certain brainwave patterns and things? And, you know, could we really understand higher states? Or is there sort of mm. a whole lot of variation and subjective difference and so on that so we'll never be able to standardize it, you know? I hope we'll never be able to standardize it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, that might take away some of the joy and the surprise. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that my, I, I can only speak of my own experience. My own experience is that I am aware all the time. Um, and I don't, it doesn't get overshadowed anymore. Uh, I can still get upset. Uh, I can still feel some, you know, a friend of mine was driving and I was in the car with him and we had a little bit of a close call. And I can remember going, ah, you yeah. know, but, but it didn't stick. It didn't stick right. like it used to. It, it just sort of went away in a couple of days, you know, mm -hmm. it was just gone. Yeah. And so I would say part of the hallmarks would be the impressions, the relationship to the impressions of the mind and the physiology shifts and changes. Yeah, line on water or line on air as opposed to line in stone. Right, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so we've alluded to celestial perception, or, or we might say perception or appreciation of subtle phenomena which are ordinarily not perceived with the grosser aspects of the senses, if that's a good way of defining it. And, and you've had a lot of this stuff throughout your life, and it might be interesting to talk about some of them, <laughs> just for fun. Like, for instance, how you met your wife. <laughs> yeah. And is well, this the wife you are now married to, or are you talking about? Yes, no? it is. Okay, yep, good. Nope, nope, and you nope, mentioned yes. she's Korean. Yeah. Yes, yeah. she is. Okay. Yeah. That story starts about six months before we met. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in meditation, and I heard a voice in my head, and it just called my name. And I went, whoa, you know, what's that? And I thought... It was a woman's voice? Yeah, yeah, okay. it was. It had that. It was very distinctive voice. I would have recognized it in a minute. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, oh God, am I going schizophrenic or something here? You know, you know. And, uh, and then, uh, like a month, literally about a month later, boom, I get the voice again. And I was like, oh, jeez. And and it happened about every month. And I was starting to wonder if I should worry or not. And then I went to. Um, uh, a, a retreat, a uh, meditation retreat, Tim held uh, 
at the Cobb Mountain facility they used to have. And uh, honestly, at that point, I was sort of like not dating anybody. I didn't want to get involved with any women at all because I'd had more than my share of difficult times and decided that I wasn't any good at it. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I was sort of standoffish, but uh, I was sitting at this table and the woman who later became my wife comes over and sits down and we're just chatting lunch, you know, and I'm going, I'm not going there, you know, she's beautiful. She's intelligent, you know, oh, gosh, you know, what wasn't to like, but I was like, uh, -uh you know, I'm not going to go there. And so this kind of went on for the time of the course and uh, I'm resisting, but the presentation's there. And then the last day of the course, I, uh, I go to the office to turn in my key, all right? So I'm standing at the, the window and I'm setting my key down because nobody was in the office. And I hear the voice and it's going, Michael. And I go like, ah, oh, geez, you know, again. <laughs> and so I ignore it, I ignore it. And the voice goes, Michael, really emphatically. I'm going like, what's going on here? And then it's louder and I, I turn around and it's, it's her. My, my now wife, it's mm -hmm. her. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I better pay attention to this. So we decided to uh, to have a date, and uh, which I was resisting, uh, but uh, we did, uh, and uh, got married. But whatever, I don't remember how long. You'd have to ask my wife. Men, <laughs> men are terrible at that. Yeah, <laughs> but, as long as you remember your anniversary, it'd be okay. Uh, I do, yeah. I do, and uh, and uh, it's. Um, Okay. You know, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. So we wouldn't call that celestial perception, but it's something unusual and interesting. Yeah, and, and yeah exactly. Um, yeah, there's a guy, Paul Morgan Summers, who had a similar experience like that. He just, he, this name came to him. I interviewed him a month or two ago, and he, he'd never heard of this person or anything else. And um, then he was in a store or something, and he overheard some women talk, and they mentioned this name. It was an unusual name. And he went up to them and, and said, you know, this person exists, this name? And, and they said, yeah, yeah, she lives so-and-so or whatever. And so he looked her up in the phone book or something and called her, and he, he called her up and he said, you know, I think I'm supposed to marry you. And, <laughs> and she, she, he, uh, she thought he was a total nutcase because she'd never heard of the guy, uh, but he ended up marrying her. Um, long, you know, it's a long story. You can watch the interview with him. <laughs> I'll have to do that. Yeah. Okay, so then you had another interesting experience with her where she was, you were living in San Francisco or something, and, and she and some lady some female friends went over to Berkeley or Oakland to have a ladies' night out. And yeah. tell, tell that story. Oh, yeah. We, we weren't married yet. Uh, we were dating. And um, <clears throat> she and her girlfriend, they went over to Yoshi's, the jazz bar, and uh, for a ladies' night out. And I was, I guess I was at my house in Berkeley. And uh, she, um, all of a sudden, I just could see everything that was going on. And <clears throat> there was a guy who was hitting on the two of them. And I thought oh, that was irritating to me. So I picked up my cell phone and I called her and I said, uh, I said, hi. She goes, oh, hi, how are you? And I said, um, would you please tell the black guy in the green jacket with the gold earring and the bald head to go away? <laughs> and she goes, what? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? you know? I'm like, oh, I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> and she had, she actually had to kind of live with that for, a, for, a, it took her a while to get used to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was kind of startling for her in the beginning. Interesting. Um, and then you had the thing where, like, 
you know, you, you started tuning into people's bodies and diagnosing things. Like there was a woman with a oh. hairline fracture below her elbow or something. Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. that one. Um, well, I was, uh, before I was married to my wife, um, I, w- I had a girlfriend and she had this woman who was her friend who was a nurse. And uh, my girlfriend was telling her stories, you know, because I always could tell what was going on with my girlfriend. And um, so she, uh, we had dinner together, and the the girlfriend of my friend uh, accosted me uh, kind of vehemently. She said, okay, she says you can see things and da-da-da-da, you know, one of those. And, uh, okay, what's wrong with my arm, you know? And so I, I, I kind of upset me, honestly. I was like, well, what? You know, I'm not doing a dog and pony show here. This isn't show and tell, you know. She, well, you don't know anything, I, you know, one of those. <laughs> and and I, I, so I, I, I don't know. I, I looked at her arm and I could see. And I said, oh, you have a hairline fracture. And I said, it's like right here, you know. And she goes, no, I don't. <laughs> it was amazingly childish. And she says, you know, it was x-rayed and they didn't find anything. And that was the last time I ever heard from her. Uh, I found out uh, a little while later, I asked my friend, whatever happened to her? She said, well, um, her arm didn't heal, and they did an MRI, and it was exactly what you described. And it freaked her out that somebody could be um, you know, that tuned into you or you'd be that transparent to them. And she couldn't take it. Yeah, freaked her out, kind of violated her yeah. paradigm, probably. Yeah, totally. And I and I felt bad about that. But then she put me in the position of it, so. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, so, so there's some more of these things. While we're on this theme, let's just tell a few more because they're kind of interesting. Uh, for instance, you've had a number of, a couple of situations you mentioned where you noticed that there was a breast lump in someone. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you weren't staring. I'm sure the woman could say, my, you know, my eyes are up here, right? <laughs> but you cognized. I, I, I can honestly say I wasn't staring because <laughs> nothing was exposed. They were well, well-dressed women. You yeah. Know? And uh, yes, I'm a guy, but uh, I wasn't staring. And uh, in fact, one of the women was a friend of the person that I was talking to, and she was kind of tangential to it. And then I just went, oh, and I... I I, I don't know why. I just turned I looked at her and I said, look, you don't know me at all, but I want to tell you this because it may help you save your life. I told her what happened. She said, oh, my God, thank you. And uh, I found out from her friend that she did go check it out, and it was a lump in her breast, and it probably saved her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, there's one that's not there that I'll tell you that's a little bit more interesting. I haven't written it down. Uh, but um, recently I went in to have my uh, cardio cardiology exam uh, last June and uh, so I go in and uh, I'm in the little room you know and the the very nice young woman comes in very sharp professional comes in and she starts typing my information into the hospital computer and answering questions and I look at her and I've gotten very careful I don't open my mouth and say things unless I know who my audience is but for some reason I just blurted out I said what happened to your kidneys she goes, oh, my God, how did you know about that? And I'm like, oh, God, what have I done? You know? And she says, you know, that happened when I was two years old, and I don't even remember which one. And I looked at her, and I said, oh, it's the left one. And she goes, oh, yeah. you know. So I'm like, why did that happen? Why did I do that? Mm. I, I felt badly, you know, and I apologized to her. 
Well, a while later, a, another, the, the, the cardiologist uh, physician's assistant came in and she had a headscarf on and uh, she, was, she was under chemo and uh, had cancer. I think it was like maybe ovarian cancer. And so I, I'm looking at her and chemotherapy make her so cloudy that you can't perceive her right away. But after we sat there, we talked for 15, 20 minutes, I started to see, and I could see that the cancer was not completely gone yet. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to open my mouth, you know, not going to say a thing. But uh, in another meeting we had later, another date, she came in and I looked at her and I said, look, this is going to sound really strange to you. I said, you can just think I'm some weirdo. But I said, I, this is what I'm seeing. And I told her what I saw. And she, she was, you know, crestfallen. It really shocked her. And I said, look, I don't expect you to believe me, but the young lady in your office, you know, and I described her, told her her name. I said, she and I had a, something went around about her kidneys. So you, she never met me before. And so what I took out of that was reason for the whole kidney thing was so that when I had the... An excuse to say, yeah, some yeah, reinforcement. There's some, yeah, there's some proof there. You yeah, know? interesting. Yeah, so I, and I haven't talked to her since. I don't know how she is or anything else, but my sense was that um, she would live yeah. because... And I told her, I said, I think you're going to live because you're going to go back and finish this up. Well, yeah. another interesting part that this story reveals is that you know when a person is in you know higher state of consciousness, they say and do stuff that they may not know why they're saying and doing it. It just kind of stuff happens, stuff comes out of their mouths. They find themselves doing certain things, and yet there it turns out there's a wisdom to it that they couldn't have yeah intellectually worked out. You know, <clears throat> that's my experience of it. So I'm I'm trying to be very much more open now, uh, but I have had a, a number of times when people have been healed mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I can't claim any doership in that. Yeah, you, know. yeah, you mentioned something about healing some ribs and then a clavicle and then an uh, yeah. ACL injury, a knee injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, she's a lovely, lovely woman, one of uh, my students and uh, she hurt herself and we were talking and she I was obviously in pain. And I don't know why, I just looked, I said, well, oh, would you like to fix that? She goes, well, yeah, you know. And I said, well, come over here. And I don't really have to touch anybody, but in her case, I felt if I put my hand on her shoulder, that contact would signify to her that there's something going on. So I just, and there were other people in the room watching this. I would never have touched a young woman sure, without, yeah. without somebody in the room, you know, yeah. and particularly my wife, you know. And so I just put my hand on her shoulder and, and about, you know, I don't know, less than a minute. And then I looked, I said, you're going to be fine. And she had instant relief and felt better and healed up. And then she, she felt so good, she went skiing. Yeah. And she uh, took a tumble and they took her off the mountain, ski patrolled her off the mountain, took her to the local hospital. They did an x-ray and she had this massive tear in her ACL. And so she Which calls is a ligament in the knee. People don't. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. I'm not even actually sure where it is, but except I can see something. Anterior crucial ligament, or something it's called. I. I wouldn't. I'm not a medical person. <laughs> and so she um, calls me up on uh, Wednesday. I think it was Wednesday or Thursday. And she says, "I'm going in for surgery on Friday. You know, I've got this. this you know, I can have somebody drive me up there. Can you fix it?" And I just. I just. So. 
what you re- what really happens is you take a sankalpa. Yeah. Okay. So uh, define that. Uh, it's a thought at the subtlest relative level, and then you you fall back into the transcendent. Well, in my case, I was already in the transcendent, but uh, so then you know it's this, it becomes a very powerful thought that comes to fruition. Yeah. And uh, maybe quicker than uh, a regular thought might. So um, I just I said to her, I said, "No, oh, no, you don't need to come up." I said, "You're going to be fine." You know, and I didn't really think about that. I just came out of my mouth, and I didn't even think about what I meant by you're going to be fine, you know. Well, she goes in Friday morning, and the orthopedic surgeon uh, looks at the x-ray and goes, oh, this is so bad, I've got to have an MRI. So she sends her out for the MRI. She gets the MRI, and they come back, and the MRI shows nothing wrong. Everything is totally healed, perfect. How does that happen? Yeah, it just happens. <laughs> yeah, no, that's kind of stuff. I mean, there's a guy on TV. Harry, what's the name of that TV show you were watching with that healer guy from Australia? The healer, I think it was called. But anyway, amazing. I mean, this it, it took a lot out of him in his case. He had to sort of really rest up after these incidents. But he, you know, there were shows... Uh, you know, where football players who had really screwed up their knees and you know, could barely walk or all of a sudden be able to run. And he's, he's really remarkable. So yeah. uh, this stuff, it's it's a little tangential, I'd say, to uh, the whole awakening enlightenment thing. But it, I think it's somewhat related because it, it indicates that there is more to life than the ordinary gross mechanics and, you know, the things we happen to believe because they happen to fit our experience so far. Right. I think it's good yeah, to have I, an open mind about this stuff. Yeah, I agree. And one thing that I want to say, because I don't want to get a thousand phone calls, um, I cannot automatically heal people. Right. All right. I, I Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't happen. And, you know, you take the thought and you get the feedback saying, nope, this is karmic or whatever. Guy's got to go through this. That's the way it is. And other times it just happens. Uh, and I, I'm not, I don't put myself out as a healer. It's not my, uh, not my thing. Not person. Your calling card. <laughs> it, it's just, it just happens around me. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Um, now, speaking of Sankalpa, and speaking of healing, uh, you had an interesting experience with Ama. And I mentioned Sankalpa because she has done that for a lot of, that kind of thing for a lot of people. Um, I mean, and it's easy to, it would be easy to say, oh, well, it could have happened anyway, but there are so many instances where she's done a Sankalpa for somebody and yeah. the thing works out. I mean, in our case, even finding our house, you know, we went to her oh. and we said, you know, we, we really want to have a house and so we can't, Fords the Patyaveda, you know, which was all the rage around here. And, you know, what should we do? And and she she said, "I'm will do some kapha, and and don't worry about the Patyaveda, just buy oh. get, get the right house." And and so then I was at work, and somebody mentioned, you know, some ad house for sale someplace. I called Irene and gave her an address, and she went to look for it and got lost and came down this driveway and found the, the house we now live in, which is oh. you know perfect for us. And uh, oh, that's great. And and actually with a little modification, you know, somewhat. In, in keeping with the Pajaveda. So anyway, that, that kind of thing could be brushed off, but oh, there, there have been a lot of other little divine interventions like that. Yeah, And you yeah, had no. a big one. I mean, tell us yours. Oh, um, well, I, uh, I was sitting in meditation when my wife and I lived in, uh, in Redwood Shores, the San Francisco Bay Area. It's a 
a little bit south of San Francisco there. And I was sitting in meditation. It was like Amma's voice in my head. It said, come to my ashram now. And I was like, you know, you had, what? had you seen Amma before? And oh, visit? yeah. Yeah, you, so, okay. Yeah, yeah we've been going to Amma for years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, oh, God, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I was like, oh, so I went back to the mantra. And then it was like, no, now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got up, I went downstairs, said my wife, look, I got this cosmic telegram, I think was the words I used. I said, uh, I think I'm supposed to go to Amit's ashram. And my wife goes, well, go. And she didn't mean San Ramon, California. She meant India, right? She meant India, yeah. yes. So I, uh, I booked a flight. I mean, I went. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, got, I had a three-day delay because it snowed in London. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have any snow plows. Mm. So, so I got a delay, but I got there, um, had the taxi ride from hell from the airport to her ashram. Uh, God, that was oh, uh, mind-boggling. Um, the floorboards in the vehicle were sort of there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and you know how it is. It, it, yeah, India is rough. It's rough, but uh, beautiful and rough at the same time. So I, I, uh, I'm at her ashram. Um, I'm up, God, 16 floors, uh, and the uh, and the building I'm in, uh, and um, I'm in deep meditation again. And all of a sudden, I get another voice. <laughs> Except I don't know this voice. I don't know. It's a man's voice, or it's a what I would say is a male voice, and it says go downstairs. And I went back to the mantra, <laughs> you know, ignoring my thoughts and meditation as we've been trained. And then I, the voice said, you know, go downstairs. So I thought, no, I'm going to go downstairs. So I got up, went, took the elevator down and walked out the front of the flat there. Uh, and, and, I, and I said, I literally said, okay, now what? <laughs> and my feet, my feet just started moving. It was like my legs were propelled on their own. And so I just relaxed and saw where they took me. And they took me, uh, Amma's ashram has a huge facility that's a Kali temple, with a lot of seating in it and some business offices and that kind of stuff. And, and to the right-hand side of that, there's sort of a little alleyway and some small low buildings. And one of those low buildings is where she was born. Yeah, and, and that particular building is now a uh, shrine and a small temple. So I was walking down to there. I get there, literally just as they're starting a Mahamrityanjaya Homa, which is a Lord Shiva Homa, a Homa for healing and enlightenment. And there was one. There was maybe a dozen people there, ten or twelve people, uh, and there was like one place to sit right next to the to the fire and with a, a, a wall that I could lean my back on, which is really important for me. And uh, so I, I sat down there and this young man, I've never seen anybody before since like him. Normally when you see the pundits and stuff, they're usually in the orange robes or something like that when they do these, almost not all of them, you know, there could be in the white dotis. He was in a white doti and uh, he had little past shoulder-length dark hair, most illuminating eyes you could imagine. And then there were two older, two or three older gentlemen across from me who were assisting him. And they were wearing 
for some reason, I, I've never I've never seen a man wearing a dhoti like that. Their dhotis were almost like they were made out of saris, you mm -hmm. know. They're kind of amber-colored and beautiful. And this is, I've been to a lot of um, these Vedic ceremonies, and I've never before or since been to one that was as precise as this. This pundit, this guy, he everything he did was like a, like a robot, you know, but with life. And so he was 100% focused and consumed in what he was doing. And the job of the gentleman was to hand him what he needed as it was needed. And uh, I know the Mahabharata Jaya, so I was chanting along with him. And then when uh, it was over, everybody just got up and left, and I got up and left. Uh, the interesting thing is, uh, I thought about him, you know, and I, uh, I realized I had not seen him around the temple the whole time I was there, either before or after it. And, and then I, I got to think about that, you know, he's so familiar to me. He looks very familiar to me. And then I went, oh, God. <laughs> and I, I pulled out my autobiography of the Yogi book, and I looked up the drawing of uh, Babaji in that book. And I cannot say that it was Babaji that I saw. There's no way I could ever say that. But all I can tell you is spit an image of that drawing. Hmm. And uh, I didn't die. <laughs> I mean, you haven't really explained the situation with your heart and all, but you you were sort of, um, your, your life was a bit in jeopardy. Yeah, to, yeah. I, I, was, uh, I was dancing on thin ice. Right. Yeah, I was still dancing, but it was thin ice. Yeah, I had a atrial fib where my heart used to do 285 beats a minute, sometimes oh. for, for a month at a time. Yikers. And uh, it was just wearing me out. I had a cardiologist who was an idiot. <laughs> uh, who misdiagnosed and mistreated me, which cost me my uh, gallbladder. And most people get their gallbladders out. They don't have any problems. I have problems. Mm. And I saw myself, before all this happened, I saw myself dying. Mm. And I could see it clearly. I knew exactly when it was going to happen. Not the exact day, but I knew it would be June. And I knew it would be about three years away from that moment in time that I saw it. I saw everything. So I literally, I got my affairs in order, I did my will, I talked to my wife, uh, I had a beautiful uh, Jyotish ring, I gave that to my son, which he lost, <laughs> which is okay, it was fine, it actually worked out, it was one of those things that worked out for the better, but um, yeah, it was, I just didn't see myself being, being around anymore, and then after this, um, I lived. Did you have you had the AFib anymore, and have you had any medical checkups that have indicated well, that something has actually been changed or healed? I did have the um, surgery for AFib. I had uh, radio frequency ablation, and um, uh, that was real fun. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing like having your catheter removed, uh, <laughs> but um, so you know. Yeah, it was dicey, <clears throat> but I've never had an atrial fib symptom since, knock on wood, and um, I have a EKG, small little personalized EKG machine that I can check my heart with. Uh, it actually works with your cell phone. It's pretty amazing, and um, it's called Cardia, 
highly recommend it. And so I could track and I have had no symptoms at all of atrial fib in all these years mm. since then. And so you're pretty confident as far as you can be that it was a result of this intervention uh, by Ama going to her ashram and having this whole yagi with possibly yeah. with Babaji. Yeah, I would say her and also Sri Krunamayi, mm. um, uh, which is another story. Uh, hey, tell that one if you want. Sri Krunamayi another was, nice example of a sankalpa here. Yeah, Sri Krunamayi, who's extraordinary. Who's been on uh, that gap. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's mm. right, yes. Uh, she was in um, Portland, Oregon. And so I flew out, stayed with some friends to see her. And uh, um, when it was my turn to go up, you know, she gives you a little three by five card. You can write things on there. And I wrote, I said, I see myself dying and this is the way it is. And fine, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to see Shiva before I die, if possible. And I gave it to her. And uh, she just took it and she held it. She looked at it and she just nodded her head. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that was it. And so I thought, okay, cool. I went to the back of the church. I went up in the choir loft and I was, I thought, oh, I'll sit down and meditate. And I sat down to meditate, but I had so much shakti, so much energy that I couldn't. I, it was like the mantra was just like a little ping out in outer space or something, you know. I was just vibrating. And while I'm sitting there, I, you know, I had my eyes closed. All of a sudden, I see Amma, and she's, you know, Sri Krinamayi was also called Amma right. by her people. So she's standing in front of me. And I, so I'm like, well, that's interesting, you know. And I open my eyes, and she's standing in front of me, except that I can see her still sitting on the stage. Right. You know, uh, and I thought, well, wow. Um, and so I close my eyes, I open my eyes, the same thing. Uh, and then she, she morphed, I think is the right word, into Saraswati. Hmm. And it was Saraswati standing in front of me, the white sari, the whole thing. I mean, it's like, oh my God, you know. And I, I was shaking. And uh, it's, these things are very humbling. I think I want to make that very clear. They really, uh, I find them to be, you know, they, they just cut you down to a very human being uh, in a beautiful sense, but uh, I'm glad you're saying that because I've you know listened to a lot of people talk about flashy experiences who seem to have very vivid imaginations and like to attract attention, you know, by yeah, no, all I, the marvelous I, things they're experiencing. But I don't get that feeling with you. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll come, I want to make a point on it, but anyway. So while I was sitting there looking at her, all of a sudden. She showed me her divine form, and it was exactly like Saraswati. The, the yeah, like the Gita describes Krishna showing Arjuna. Mm. The entire universe is like there, mm -hmm. and I totally get why Arjuna was going like, "Hey, it's okay. <laughs> take it back. Take it back now." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so overwhelming that I think that if it had been a flash of a minimal of a second longer. I would have fried and died. Mm. And and then, you know, boom, and then everything went back to normal. And I sat there and I went, well, who gives a damn if I die now? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, what, what difference does it make? Yeah. I, so I, I, that was pretty cool. I want to make a, if I may, um, Maharishi 
years ago told me I should share my experiences because he said they were good experiences and people could you know benefit from hearing and I didn't I didn't for a very long time because mm. I didn't want to stand out and be that person you know and have and I also didn't want to have people go like ooh you know yeah uh, I, I'm not I'm not wired like that but one of his well his minister of of yoga was a very dear friend of mine an extraordinary man he kept encouraging me to talk my experiences so finally I started sharing them um, and I've I've said my whole spiritual life that my number one job is to keep my ego out of it mm. you know uh, I have met people who, who want to go oh Michael you're so special and I always know <laughs> you know I, I, I think Maharishi was our example he always gave all credit to his teacher and his tradition and I honestly feel the same way. I, I'm, I can't take credit for anything. Uh, I'm very cognizant that, you know, the statement that only God is the doer is rather accurate. Uh, and, well, I, I, anyway, I just wanted to say that so sure. that people don't yeah. think, you know, grandstanding or somebody special because I don't feel I'm somebody special. Yeah, that's good. Glad you said that. About dying. Do you have any idea what's going to happen to you when you die? Yes, actually, now I do. What is it? So, um... You're going to be put in charge of the whole galaxy. No. <laughs> I, um, years ago, I, I talked to a Jyotish who's world famous... Vedic yes. astrology. Jyotish. Yeah. 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 Thank you for saying that. Uh, who's world famous, bestseller, book writer, all that sort of stuff. And I said, uh, you know, tell me about my life. And he said that I came into human existence from the Nagas. Uh -huh. Which are these snake beings. Yeah, uh, very ancient um, dragons, you mm. know, of beings. And there's yeah. fundamentally three different types. But Just to interject here, uh, my, my first interview with Sri M, uh, rec he, he recounts a very interesting experience he had with a Naga. But anyway, uh, that's a footnote, uh, so continue well, on. I've had a I've had a lot of very wonderful experiences with Nagas, mm -hmm. and um, so I um, I thought that was interesting because I came from there straight into being a human being without going through a lot of other rigmarole. So that I checked that with two other Jyotishas, you know, asking for a second opinion from your doctor. Then same thing, and I checked it with a, a woman that I know of who's a, a extraordinary intuitive. And she said yes. Now, when you checked it with these folks, did you say, "Hey, was I a Naga?" And then they said yes, or did you? Did they actually come out with the Naga thing from their no, side? I, I actually, ha I'm, I'm a little more um, circumspect. Yeah, I, I'm like, uh, uh, you know, let's go. You know, what, what what went on? You know, and I just get you know an innocent confirmation. Right. Um, and uh, so these particular Nagas that I'm talking about are beings of light, mm -hmm. uh, very wise ancient beings of light. Uh, and uh, I've been invited, supposedly, uh, to, um, when I leave here, to go back there and share my experience in my life and my knowledge and learnings with them and that, that culture and all of that. Interesting. Are they just, this is a, maybe a dumb question, but do they reside on some subtler realm? Do they reside on a different planet? Or, or uh, what? how does it work? Subtler realm. It's, okay. it's a place. It's a, what, but, but it doesn't necessarily have a geographic location vis-a-vis -vis the Earth. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Just, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't understand how that works. 
Okay. Well, that's interesting. You have something to look forward to. Well, get yeah, back with your buddies. But I was also told I also have the option of I could come back, but they've told me there's no need. I could, uh, you know. Yeah, you did take a Bodhisattva yeah, vow, remember? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna give you a gold watch and you can retire. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, I've been told that if I wanted, and I also have the opportunity to merge with the absolute. And I, um, if I've made up my mind, I'm not aware of having made up my mind. Yeah. So, so that brings up an interesting question. You have these options, right? And a couple of the options involve continuing as some kind of embodied being. Yeah. Um, and there are people who argue that um, there is ultimately no person. And therefore, any notion of continuation of a person after the body dies is nonsense. There couldn't be reincarnation. There couldn't be this or that yeah. because there's nothing or no one to reincarnate. Uh, and um, yeah. how do you sit with that argument? Well, and yet the universe recreates itself continually in migrant ways that are filled with wonder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm figuring if the uh, universe wants that to happen, it'll figure out a way to make it happen. Uh, I don't feel like that's something that we have to take an absolute point of view on and say it's this way or that way. Uh, because there's so much in the Vedic literature and other, you know, Tibetan Buddhist literature, other cultures uh, where um, that, yes, you know, you can come back and come into another body. Um, by the way, the one thing that I should have mentioned, which just came to me, is one of the reasons why I was going to die was because I had burnt up 100% of the karma that I came into with mm. this life. Mm-hmm. And so, supposedly, when that happens, you're you're done, and you go and you get a new container. Um, and and I have a real sense of that that all of that stuff that I came in with, it's just gone. Uh, and it's not that things don't happen to you, and you know, karma still happens because you're in a body and stuff, but it doesn't bind you anymore. You're not stuck. So that's the difference. The concept of reincarnation is based on fundamentally based on something binding you over mm -hmm. to take another form. Like it's compulsory as opposed to voluntary. Right, yeah. And so if you can do it compulsory, why can't you do it voluntary? Yeah. But then let me ask you this. Um, you know, what is it? Let's say a person's enlightened. They're in Brahman consciousness. Um, is there still some sort of kernel that identifies them as an individual, if you can use the word individual, as a, yeah. as a being that could actually take on another body? And and if so, what is what is that thing? I mean, um, the, the, apparently, if if what I'm saying is true, it's not something which disappears or dissipates or dissolves when enlightenment okay. takes place. There's still well, uh, some... Okay. Yeah, you got it? Yeah. Um, let's use the word soul. Okay. Your soul. Uh, your soul, theoretically, is immortal. Okay. And we're talking about an individual expression, not just the universal soul or something. Right. Yeah, your, your particular, your soul. Right. That, that soul of yours. And so that soul can... Um, what happens to it? Okay, what happens to that piece? Uh, 
if you read the Vedic literature, it talks even about like it carrying on for millenniums or uh, yugas or uh, coming out again after the creation dissolves and comes back. And not just because you're in ignorance and you have to be reborn, but even if you're enlightened, it says this, right? Are you saying? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's there. I've read it. Okay. Don't ask me where because I've read so much. I can't. Yeah. I should have I should have kept notes, notes. <laughs> but I I didn't. Um, and so yeah, I I'd say that it that's the soul, and then the the, the karma. What is that? That's a whole wad. What is it? it's a wad of cause and effect that somehow has attached itself to. Well, the ego thinks that that's what it is. It thinks that. You know, I I am this wad of stuff that's me. Yeah, you know, that's a horrible explanation, but well, but uh, it, yeah, and it has all kinds of likes and dislikes and preferences and opinions right, yeah. and attitudes and biases and yeah, yada yada. So that stuff comes back, and somehow it's got to fulfill itself. Well, what is it? Why is it fulfilling itself? That's the question I would was asking myself for years. And Maharishi made that very clear that it's it's evolving toward full realization. So once you're fully enlightened, you can you have the possibility of not returning. Yeah, not the certainty, but the possibility. You're saying right? Yeah, exactly. Don't join us. This is Luna. Yeah. Hi, Luna. <laughs> yeah, and you know if you read the Vedic literature, supposedly since you. But since Luna stepped on it, it's the exact right segue. Good. Uh, so, yeah, she so, knows what she's doing. Supposedly, when you die, you go to the moon. Oh, yeah, I've heard that the Petris live on the moon. I, yeah. I, I was in a room with Marshi one time when he said that, and I thought, I said, Marshi, Petris on the moon, and you know, there's no air there. And he looked at me like some, some kind of idiot. Yeah, well, <laughs> well I, I can remember there was a man on one of our courses who was dying. And Marish and he were having sort of a discussion, but I was able to overhear it. And the man said, you know, what's going to happen? And Marish said, I'll see you at the moon. Interesting. Yeah. And I thought, wow, how beautiful. He's going to go and be there when the guy passes away hmm. and, you know, maybe intercede with him with the lords of karma. I don't know. But it's going to help him along his way. And yeah. uh, Christ Christina Olson, who, anyway... TM meditators would know who she is. Yeah. She told me that Marishi did the same thing for her mother when her mother passed. Mm. So I think that's beautiful. I'm not a sports guy. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about sports, but I didn't understand the concept of a free agent. Mm -hmm. So maybe the enlightened person is now a free agent and he can go sign on with, with who he wants to sign on. Yeah, or he can, he can merge back into the absolute, yeah. uh, right? I mean, you, you, you mentioned that as an option. And, you know, I mean, all this stuff, people at this point might be saying, yeah, who knows? I mean, this is all so speculative. And they, these guys are referring to stuff that is in ancient scriptures and it may be all mythological and all. But, I mean, one of the presumptions of these ancient scriptures is that there were people, and could be now, who could actually know this stuff with some certitude through a cognitive process that yeah. is uh, available to those who... Who, who have awakened, you know, who, who have become enlightened. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's correct. Um, after all, that's what the Vedic rishis did. You know, yeah. they co yeah. they cog cognized the functioning of the universe and 
uh, you know, gave gave it forth, and eventually it got written down, and uh, we have that. Uh, and and the, those teachings have evolved as more knowledge has come on. You know, now you have, you know, it went from Rig Veda to Samaveda to Yajurveda, etc., uh, to the Upanishads and uh, to Vedanta. Mm-hmm. You know? And so there's this kind of progression. And even those those deities referred to in the early Vedas uh, grew and changed over time mm. as as more knowledge came on. If you know, according to what I read, anyway. So why not? Uh, you know, why not? I can look at a lot of things now, and I've been sort of satisfying my curiosity a bit here and there, but I haven't really taken a hard look at uh, or a soft look, I guess, to be more accurate at um, that whole decision point about what what am I going to do next. Yeah. Maybe you don't need to decide until it's time, until you're, you're faced with the actual choice. Yeah. yeah. And, and the you other don't need to worry about that, it. The other thing that's interesting is I don't see a death for me anymore. Right. So I figure I'm just more normal now, like, like anybody else. I don't see something. Uh, yeah. And it, so it, in one sense, I will never die, and uh, my body will go, and then what happens, happens. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'll write, I'll write you a letter. Okay, please do, yeah. And incidentally, I mean, on this whole theme of what's supposed to happen after we die and all that, um, and all these, these topics we've been just discussing for a few minutes, which are kind of, I regard any, any idea that you want to consider as a hypothesis. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And hypotheses are not something to be believed in or disbelieved. They're something to investigate. Yeah. yeah. And there may be some things which, you know, there may be many, there are many things which science can't investigate. It doesn't have the tools. But what we're, what we're implying here is that spirituality, if, if properly understood and applied, provides tools to explore things which were heretofore considered metaphysical or mystical or, you know, beyond any possibility of certainty. Yeah, you know, the Dalai Lama, he was asked, okay, what happens when you die? And he said, well, I have certain beliefs. I've been trained. This is, you know, what we believe as Buddhists. Do I know? Uh, No. (laughs) He was was real honest. You know, he was real straightforward. And I feel the same way. I have ideas and thoughts and some cognitions that are pretty clear. But, you know, like everybody else, uh, I guess I'll find out. Yeah, this is... uh kind of what Nachiketas was asking Yama, you know, what, what happens you know, when he dies? Does he exist or does he exist not? Yeah. And Yama said, oh, please don't make me tell you that. <laughs> I'll give you anything, kingdoms, you know, beautiful women, whatever you want, but don't make me answer that question. But, you know, kind of Nachiketas oh. held him to it. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, yeah. Now, you said earlier that, you know, you've been talking to me for a while and you kind of tuned into me. Uh, and my body becomes sort of part of your body or some such thing. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, have you picked up on anything? You're very healthy. You're very clear in your... I, I think it's amazing how many enlightened people you've attracted around you. This, you're clearly, you know, in your dharma, and your consciousness is amazingly clear. Uh, it's uh, It's like if you're not enlightened, you know, somebody just needs to come along and go, <laughs> I don't consider myself enlightened, or I don't make any claims whatsoever. Um, but 
you know, I, I haven't had any big flashy head exploding kind of things like you've had. Um, I hope most, well, most people, people don't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 I don't witness sleep, although I've had that occasionally. And uh, but what I do find is that there's a rock solid presence or silence or whatever you want to yeah. call it that, your, that your nothing, heart, nothing shakes. Yeah, your heart is like beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I don't, at least right now, I'm not, I'm not picking up on, you know, any illness or particular life-threatening problems or anything. You know, okay. I don't I see. I was hoping fix this sore shoulder. I don't know what's causing it. I'm <laughs> thinking of switching my mouse to my left hand. <laughs> Maybe it's that. <laughs> no, don't worry about. It. I'm just kidding you. Okay, so um, we've covered quite a bit. And um, oh. is there anything that? kind of like pops into your mind that you, you feel like we'd, you'd like to talk about while we have the chance? Well, uh, let people know. I, well, I'm not an Amway salesman, so, uh, <laughs> you know, I am. Um, Herbalife, right? God, <laughs> I, I just can't stand pyramid marketing schemes. Yeah, but, uh, uh, yeah I know, you know, I'm, um, I've got a website up. If anybody wants to take a look at that, I think you've got a link. Yeah, I'll put uh, up the link. I guess what I would like to think about myself is as maybe a spiritual consultant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And if I can help someone understand their experiences and, you know, uh, deal with mood making versus the real thing, uh, I would be delighted if I could help people that way. I'm certainly open to visit someplace and give talks that kind because of, I've done that for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm open to teach meditation to people on a one-to-one -one basis because that's what I do. You have to do that in person, right? You don't do that over Skype or something. No, I, I don't. I know of people who do things over Skype. Yeah. And I'm kind of yeah. like, yeah. Uh, but uh, no, I, I would. It would have to be one-to-one. -one. So, so they I'm would have to come to Utah, or you would have to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but I'm willing to talk to people. You know, they can. Um, there's a link on my website. They can write me. And uh, I'll, I will write back. Um, it would be delightful, you know, delightful to to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I guess I'm still trying to help people have the awakening. You know, yeah. have, have an awakening. Have you ever? Do you feel like you've ever been instrumental in triggering an awakening in, in anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got six students of mine who are all awake now, and some of that I pointed them to another person who was able to knock them over the line. Yeah. Um, but also, um, a couple of them woke up here, uh, and uh, in my medita dedicated puja meditation room, they went, "Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Look at lights coming out of me! I'm shining light everywhere!" You know? Cool. Yeah. yeah, it was really beautiful, and. Um, I, I personally think we're going to see more and more awakenings over the next few years. Uh, it's just time, and it's one way we're going to rescue the world from the mess it's in. Yeah, uh, we I have think so to too. have a shot at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of new agey types have been saying that this this thing is going to happen, and a lot of ancient cultures have too. The, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, uh, there's going to be a, an awakening or a dawning of higher consciousness in the world. Yeah. So um, I hope so. I hope, I hope so. so. You know, we're all doing our part. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. And you know what? I always tell people who come to meditate, 
we, you know, I never thought I would win the Nobel Prize or anything like that, you know. But I always thought as long as I was meditating, I was doing my part. You know, that story of Krishna. Krishna hold, yeah, the people holding the, up their sticks. Their sticks. Yeah. And, and I always felt like, okay, I'm holding up my stick. I'm, I'm doing what I can do. Yeah. And I, I think if, if people just do that, um, there's a tremendous beauty to that. And it does make the world a better place. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And that story about the sticks, just briefly, is, you know, Indra was jealous of Krishna because the people of Vrindavan were so into Krishna. And so he started pouring down rain on the village to sort of get at people. And they, the people pleaded to Krishna to save them. Krishna went and picked up a, a hill or a mountain and, and held it above the village with his hand to act as an umbrella. And all the people, after a while, thought, ooh, he can't hold that up all by himself. So they all grabbed a stick and came and kind of helped to hold up the mountain. And of course, it actually didn't do anything, but they felt like they were helping. So, yeah. you know, we're kind of like, you know, we really God is doing everything, but we can feel that we're helping, <laughs> holding up a stick Absolutely. Uh, by our yeah. whatever we're doing in the in the interest of you know helping to awaken the world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very special, and I think it's also reminds us of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. Uh, I've worked around the world quite a bit. I think one of the problems with America is that it's uh, very self-centered. Mm. You know, we, we've kind of gotten into this sort of me generation. Right. And, you know, here's my selfie and, you know, uh, you know all that sort of stuff. And I think that um, we need to be reminded of our humanity. Yeah. Uh, that we are all in this together. And I'm a huge, huge fan of and believer in the collective consciousness. When we have people here at my house, sometimes we have 20, 30, even more people, because my house can actually squeeze that many in. The effect is incredible. Everybody gets uplifted. And there's a little trick I learned, too. Were you, were you here in Iowa when we had 8,000 meditating together one time in the, in the wintertime? No, I wasn't able to make that course. That, that was rich. Uh, yeah, exactly. It is. And that's just it. When we have people together... You know, if you're a Christian, you might remember that when two or three are gathered in my name, I Here grant I their request. And if you're Maharishi, he's always told us about the power of the collective consciousness, particularly through the city program. It doesn't matter if you're an Ama devotee or, you know, a Rama, Rama devotee. It doesn't matter. If you're doing something and you're maybe you're in a satsang or something like that, then you're, you're helping uplift everyone. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, uh, I personally find that extraordinarily beautiful and important. It is. I read it a few weeks ago at the end of an interview that there's a last mandala of Rig Veda, I mean, last uh, sutta of, of the 10th mandala of Rig Veda about assembly is significant in unity. And it talks about the kind of the, the potency yeah. of a group of enlightened together. It is. It's very, very, very powerful. And we should do it as much of it as we can. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned you have these gatherings in your house. Is, what is that about? And if anybody lives in the Salt Lake area, can they come to them? Um, yes. Mostly they've been students of mine, mm -hmm. uh, meditators, although we help oh, some of them non-meditators. Uh, my dearest friend, beautiful Dorothy Rowe, mm -hmm. came and uh, 
did a session here, you know. we had, Who's been on BatGap, by the way. Yeah, I know. It's a, She's so wonderful. But yeah, you know, she was here and the eye of Kolke opened up. Hmm. And and I saw it, you know, and she saw it. We, you know, I was like, whoa, <laughs> it's a big eye, you know. Yeah. Uh, Shakti coming out of that was extraordinary. So it's, um, but my house is also very special. Um, there are nagas that frequent visit. Uh, there's elementals around. Uh, I have walked out in my backyard and looked up, seen locas open up and celestial beings running around. Uh, mm. It's just, it's a kind of a cool place. Uh, mm. you know, it's just a neighborhood, but uh, the grounds seem to have a quality to it. It's, people come in and they just feel it. They just go, oh, gosh, this place feels wonderful. You yeah. Know? Uh, and they have good meditations here. So that happens. I mean, uh, how long have you lived there? Uh, Uh, eight years. Huh, yeah. I mean, places imbibe the influence of the people who frequent them. Uh, yeah. You know, you walk into a bar, and even if it's closed, there's a feeling in the room there. You know? <laughs> or, you, or you walk into a temple, which has been this... Like, I remember there's a beautiful place in um, New Mexico called Sanctuario de Chimayo. And we went there one time, and all these healings have taken place. Ah, and you oh. know, we, we and there's all these crutches on the wall that people have been able to discard and stuff. And yeah, you, you walk yeah. in there, and there's just this feeling of holiness. I mean, I remember we sat down. Irene started crying right away because there's just this oh. beautiful sweetness in, in the air. Beautiful, so beautiful. it's a thing, you know. It's kind of an interesting thing to understand. But different places get imbued with the qualities of the consciousness of those who frequent them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we've done a lot of pujas. We, we you know we have Vedic uh, uh, music recitation, bhajans going twenty four by seven in multiple rooms. Uh, oh, nice. And uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's a nice place. You are most welcome. You and Irene are most welcome to come visit any time. Uh, just to tempt you, you know, we're thirty minutes away from one of the world's class ski resorts. So. Mm. Was that Snowbird and Alta? <laughs> It's right over the mountain behind my house. I can look over and see the mountain. Okay, um, I'll, I'll, take, I'll figure it out when I get there. <laughs> okay, yeah. But they held, held part of the Olympics there. We don't travel much, but if we ever do, my car on I-80, we'll stop by. Oh, that would be wonderful. Yeah. We'd love to see you guys. and all. Okay, yeah. well, well, thanks uh, for taking birth on this godforsaken planet. And um, <laughs> good luck with wherever you end up after this one. Um, but it's been a lot of fun talking to you and getting to know you better. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And to those listening or watching, um, Michael's indicated this is the same routine as with every interview. I'll, I'll put a link to his website, and you can check out what he has to offer, get in touch with him, and um, you know, possibly learn meditation from him or have a consultation or whatever you got, whatever you need or whatever you work out. And um, and we'll see you next time. Okay, that's uh, great. Off the top of my head, I forget who I'm interviewing next, but um, it'll be somebody. And we, we, we keep scheduling about, well, once a week, so stay tuned. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new one, then sign up for the little email notification thing. Um, and or subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching this on YouTube. The more subscribers, the better in terms of YouTube's sort of support. I think you're talking to Richard. Richard Scholler. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, who's an interesting guy who who actually I don't know if he still does it, but he's an undertaker, and oh, and and, and ironically, he also has sees the the deceased uh, in uh, in their 
Oh, wow. Subtle bodies or whatever. And oh. this all kind of came upon him quite unexpectedly. And I haven't really delved into his story because I completely focus on the person I'm about to interview. And then as soon as that's over, I switch gears and focus on the next one. Yeah. But anyway, that's the... the uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Well, thanks, Michael. And thanks to all those who've been listening or watching. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.